1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We have an economist, a housing expert to look at the current drama.
2: The next generation of homeowners are going to be less wealthy, more ethnically diverse, and without the same resources as previous generations. And so we need to figure out how to extend credit without tanking the financial system. What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair
0: manual for the real world, not the same old left versus right. I am
1: right. I'm right. And you are wrong. You're
2: wrong. Boring. Boring. Yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How do we fix it? How do we fix it?
1: Well, Jim, the stock market went nuts in recent days. There were lots of words thrown around on the media like panic and fear and pandemonium. And we haven't seen anything like this in years. And you know what? It kind of reminded me of when I covered news every day. And it seemed that every day there was an exclamation point behind whatever happened that day.
0: Um, I'm wondering whether this whole thing is a little bit hyped up, but still... People are worried. Well, we have to see how it plays out. But certainly, you know, it doesn't look like we're we're in the same kind of situation we were in 2008. Back then, a big part of the financial collapse had to do with a... A huge drop in um, the housing market.
1: So we have an economist, a housing expert to look at the current drama and discuss solutions as well as figuring out where we are right now. How do we fix it? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Neela Richardson is our guest via
0: Skype from Washington, D.C., Neela is the chief economist at Redfin, the real estate brokerage firm, and she's got broad experience in the mortgage industry and government, uh, having worked as an economist at Bloomberg and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission.
1: So, Neela, welcome to our show. And first question, is all this talk of, of fear and possible disaster real? Uh, has anything really changed in our economy in the last few weeks?
2: Well, first of all, thanks for having um, me on. And and yes, the fear is real, but we don't know how fearful to be yet. So what we saw earlier in the week was truly unprecedented. You don't usually wake up in the morning, turn on the TV and see that the stock market dropped a 1000 points in an hour or two. So that that is something that was shocking. Does it really matter to Main Street, that's a question that's still playing out. And what's important to remember is that the stock market is not the economy. The economy hasn't changed. It's still slowly humming along. And a lot of the fear and panic came from overseas markets. It wasn't homebred like the financial crisis of eight years ago. And so there's a big difference between now and back then.
1: Yeah, I love that phrase. The stock market has predicted 10 out of the last three recessions.
0: So what did happen in China? I mean, you know, we we hear a lot about overinvestment in housing and real estate. Is that part of it?
2: The biggest and most fundamental issue with China is institutions. In order to trade any kind of financial asset, you need quality institutions that investors can believe in. And absent of those institutions, the stock market is going to be subject to wild swings that the government is going to have a hard time controlling.
1: Do we know how big the problems are in China? Because... To a very large extent over the last decade, even 20 years, China has been a major engine of growth for the whole global economy. It's been growing at 10% or more a year, and now it seems as if things are going awry in China. How, how big a deal is that?
2: So that, again, goes back to institutions. One of the most important institutions for a stock market is transparency. And we don't have that in China. We don't really know what their growth prospects are, were, or will be. And that's an issue to investors. But it's an important to note that most American institutions are not very exposed to China. And so this is more of a um, second-hand panic than something people are actually experiencing firsthand in their portfolios.
1: Okay, but how important is China to us?
2: China is important as another global driver of the economy. China demands a lot. Its demand for commodities puts a buffer on prices. Um, It does provide a lot of economic output to the world and the surrounding emerging economies. And so in terms of China's role in the global economy, it's an important one. Um, In terms of the bilateral trade relationship with China, in terms of financial assets, it is uh, much more minimal than the stock market drop would imply.
0: Now, for a lot of Americans, the stock market is an issue with their 401k, but a lot of us have most of our wealth tied up in our home. And so far, the the housing market seems to be pretty strong. Um, How do you see the outlook in this area?
2: So... The outlook for 2015 is good. Um, We just put out some research yesterday at Redfin that shows the housing market is going to outperform last year's level this year. We see prices are growing, um, where people are still buying and selling homes. So for 2015, the outlook looks really good still. Um, There are some things that concern me over the long term.
1: So what are some of those things that concern you?
2: Well, the first is incomes. I mean, they just haven't grown wages are really stagnant. And yet we see every month that house prices keep you know, falling all over themselves to grow a little bit higher.
0: You know, I, I recently moved from a, a town that Richard and I both used to live in on the Hudson River, lovely town with great schools. And I realized that I couldn't move there again. If I was 30 today, I, I would not be able to buy a house in the town where I was very, very happy to be able to buy a house and raise my kids. And I, and I worry that for a lot of millennials today, are they're kind of being shut out of the housing market.
2: They're being shut out of the housing market for a variety of reasons. One, um, in particular, is the fact that many of them entered the labor market at the bottom. And they're still recovering from that in terms of seeking employment and getting good jobs. But the second is that prices have risen very, very quickly. Credit is very tight, and then they have this thing about called student loans that, that damper um, their entrance into the housing market.
1: And yeah, that's that's a very you've raised several very serious considerations there. Um, is there anything that you can say that's hopeful for millennials?
2: Well, time is on their side. <laughs> They're young and they don't seem in any particular hurry to do a lot of things that previous generations did around the same time period. There has been all kinds of research and talk about how millennials are delaying marriage, delaying children, delaying home ownership, and in some sense enjoying life, which is not a bad way to spend your 20s and early
1: 30s. Yeah, we have 90 million millennials, 28% of the population. There are more millennials now than baby boomers. uh, And they own only 7% of homes uh, compared to their 28% share of the population. So clearly, uh, we're not seeing yet that many millennials jumping into the housing market. Is that starting to change, though?
2: Depends on where you are. You know, at Redfin, we tend to slant urban. We're in places where millennials can find high-paying jobs, like Seattle, Washington, D.C., Boston, Chicago. Those places, there are millennials who are buying and even at some point selling homes and moving up already. But as you go to places where the economy is less good, the jobs are weaker and um, unemployment is higher, you're seeing less and less home among these young people.
1: Yeah, I think you make a very important point point about the housing market, because we often talk about it as if it's just one national market. But what really is true is that there are thousands and thousands of housing markets out there. And often what is true for one area is very untrue for another. For instance, just what Jim was saying about the town that we lived in, how prices are out of reach for for most people there. Uh, Nevertheless, that's not true in, in many other parts of the country.
2: That's correct. There are some places where we still see a lot of affordability. In fact, um, we've written at Redfin and talked about it extensively. The move inland uh, from the coast to places like Oklahoma and um, Texas and other uh, South Carolina places where you can still get a good job, make a good living, provide for your family, and hold the phone, buy a home.
0: aren't we also seeing some changes uh, in in millennials in terms of the kinds of places they want to live compared to their parents' generation? For example, uh, maybe closer to a city center rather than out in the suburbs.
2: You know, that's been a persistent issue, especially as boomers are ready to retire and they want to move to the center of cities. Who's going to buy their big suburban houses? Millennials don't want them, most of them are married. (laughs) They're not thinking about having children for a while. They want to be near bars and restaurants.
1: Well, do you think the middle class is being hollowed out, or is that just a gross generalization?
2: The persistence and growing inequality among incomes in the US is something that can't be easily ignored. And so in that sense, income inequality has taken a toll on the middle class. The problem in terms of the low home ownership rate that we're seeing is that homes have traditionally been the means by which the middle class gain wealth. And what we've seen is a very quiet transition of home ownership going from a means to an end, to an end in itself. It's something you get after you've already made it. It's not gonna help you acquire wealth. Once you get wealth, you can buy.
0: So traditionally, the U.S. government has really worked hard to encourage home ownership, uh, including the the mortgage tax deduction in particular. And, um, you know, there's been some controversy whether that's really good policy. And are we discriminating against people who rent who tend to be lower income by having a federal policy try to encourage home ownership?
2: There has always been this platform of home ownership because of the importance it's been to the U.S. historically. I thought it was worth noting that the State of the Union, President Obama, gave a speech on middle-class economics that didn't include housing. And again, that's a shift in policy. I think we're seeing less federal involvement in housing than we have in other generations.
0: And is that a good thing, or or do you think there should be more activist involvement?
2: I think we need to get smart about home ownership policy. I mean, it is the case that not everyone should be a homeowner. We learned that the hard way. But yet, the problems that were there before the financial crisis remain. The next generation of homeowners are going to be less wealthy, more ethnically diverse, and without the same resources as previous generations. And so we need to figure out how to extend credit without tanking the financial system. If we could figure that out, we'd save a lot of problems.
1: Are there any ways to do that? Are there people thinking creatively around that problem?
2: My criticism of the financial industry is that we've been really conservative about taking risk since the financial crisis. But I think there is ways to acknowledge the new forms of homes and and households that we're seeing growing up all around us through credit. I, I, I think it's time to really extend what traditional financing means, but it has to be done in a smart and safe way.
0: So, you know, this is a show about solutions and about good ideas to make the world a better place. This sounds like one. Explain how this would work. What do we need to do here?
2: So I'm going to talk a little bit about millennials, but I'm also going to look at the other side of the age spectrum, the 65 plus, because I think they're both moving in the same direction, ironically. Um, We had a, a client at Redfin who was 65 plus and wanted to move in with their friends. They wanted to age in place in a place that they couldn't afford alone. And so they bought with friends. And the idea was that they'd share caregiving as the roommates grew over time. And so here's a family structure that's kind of new, but there's no mortgage product out there that takes into account uh, really three or more household incomes. You also see that uh, if you look at diversity, Hispanic households could have more than two incomes. And so why not create products that makes sense for the new types of families and households that we're seeing pop up in response to the new changes in the economy.
1: That's a really interesting point. I mean, when I went to Vietnam uh, a couple of years ago, I noticed that there are far more multi-generational households than we have. And that answers a bunch of questions. I mean, for instance, one of the biggest crises of old age are people dying or spending their last 10 or 15 years completely alone. And if you were to have financial products that encourage different generations to to live together in the same family, that may be a a really good way of solving several problems.
2: You know, the the fact of the matter is we have a really large 65 plus generation that is about to to age in place or wants to. We have a really large young population that had um, uh, a tough time at the beginning of their careers. And so we, as a
1: That's borough.com slash ACAST. Borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Stickly and what we can do through the financial system to help give credit to these folks.
0: When I look at housing, I see a lot of people who are stuck in arrangements that aren't Necessarily great. And when you talk about what some people call co housing, you know, older people moving in together, you talk about multi generational households, you talk about alternative arrangements, these things all sound like really good ideas to me uh, to create more mobility. When you talk about these new financial instruments, it sounds like can banks do a better job of helping people be more flexible, come up with different arrangements? And I really like the sound of that.
2: I think they can, and they need support. They need a government regulation that says we won't slap you on the wrist if, if, for small mistakes, but they need to be held accountable to the, for the kind of innovation they, they do so that we don't go back to a financial crisis. It's so easy to do, um, and so it's a real balancing act between risk and safety.
1: Yeah, I, I think that... Airbnb and the sharing economy plays a role in this where, for instance, someone who wants to buy a house and says, I'm willing to have one of my bedrooms as part of the income to pay for this. At the moment, a bank will look at you and go, what? (laughs) We're not not dealing with any of that. For instance, I have a home that I rent out four months in a year, and it's much more difficult to get a home equity loan on that property than it is on somewhere where you don't have any income coming in, whereas perhaps it should be easier.
2: Um, I'm I'm in D.C. right now, Washington, D.C. The homes that are going fast are those with rentable basements. That's hot. It's because prices have gone up so much that people want that rental income in order to afford the mortgage. And that maybe should be thought of as a way to offset some other mortgages.
0: You know, you mentioned Washington, D.C. It, Washington, D.C. is one of the three most expensive cities in the country, I, I believe, along with New York and and San Francisco. All three of these cities, you know, have a real shortage of housing, uh, a real problem with affordable housing for, for middle-class people. And I'm wondering, do you think that we need to rethink the way that we manage uh, or restrict development and and loosen up so people can afford apartments and and afford condos and all the rest?
2: This is controversial, but yes. The last big new construction boom was in the 80s, and our population has grown a lot since then. Um, And what we're seeing is the types of rental um, homes being built are not the types that families can thrive in over time. In D.C., there's a real shortage of three-bedroom, two-bath apartments. Um, if you want a family to stay in the city, you have to have more than one one bedroom condos that you're building. And so uh, thinking about density and smart ways and, and building out the options in terms of rental housing is really important for affordability. The fact is we're going to see more renters in the next 10 years than homeowners. And we have to make sure that um, people have a place to live and, and we need um, some local and federal policies that help make that choice easier.
1: Both Jim and I are pretty skeptical of of the government going and building a ton of apartments, but perhaps there is room for the government to do a better job of collecting information, collecting data about what's needed in different housing markets. Is that something where there's a deficit of information?
2: Yeah, it still surprises me seven, eight years after the housing crisis, how very little we know about transactions. So data collection, I think, where people are not only living, but where they're working, where transit lines should be, um, what places are walkable, what places have a lot of turnover. All that would be really, really important in getting a handle on communities.
1: Are there some things that we can do to make ourselves more attractive to banks or perhaps uh, put ourselves in line for uh, being able to borrow the money we need to, to buy a home?
2: Sure. I mean, the single best advice I can give a young buyer is to avoid the worst mistake you can make in in the real estate market, which is to buy a home that you don't really want. (laughs) Buyer's remorse after you buy a home is a really tough thing to, to get over. So make sure that you are in a financial position to afford the monthly payment and afford... The incidentals that come with home ownership, a hurricane, you know, a, a leaking roof or a flooded basement. Um, those That's all part of being a homeowner. Um, the second thing is having um, good credit history. Uh, that's really important now as an 18, 22-year-old to start paying bills on time, establishing that credit history. Um, over time, saving for a down payment, as much as our economy is changing. The key things for financial security have not changed.
0: <laughs> so one of the things about renting is it's really flexible. You know, if you're young or sometimes if you're low income, you're a little more likely to need to move around or maybe try a different city, try something different. If you're locked into a house, then there's a lot of transaction costs. You know, the benefits of homeownership don't really accrue until you've been in there. You, you I mean, you could tell me – I I've, quite a few years right, at least uh, five years. yeah so so maybe renting is a pretty good option if your life isn't really settled
2: you know i'll never be a shrill for home ownership it really depends not on the person but where they are in their lives and you're absolutely right and I, one of the things that i think is a good thing about the financial crisis aftermath is that renting has lost some of the stigma it's okay to rent <laughs> it's okay to save for a down payment it's okay to wait um that's not a bad thing.
1: Neela Richardson, you've given us some great ideas. So what, what, what's your passion? What makes you so interested in this area?
2: You know, I think the world is becoming so complicated. And so my passion in life is to give people the data and tools they need to make the best financial decisions for themselves and their family. If I could move the needle a little bit on that, then I feel like I've done a good job today.
1: You mentioned financial literacy is something that's important. Are there any specific sites that you'd recommend to help people learn more?
2: I think the government sites, the CFPB, uh, has taken long strides to help people.
1: That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau?
2: Right. Um, to help people understand um, the, their financial transactions. There's a lot of nonprofit groups that have done that. The GSEs, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, have tools on their site that helps people who are thinking about home ownership know what the next steps are.
0: Neela, when did you buy your first home?
2: <laughs> I bought my first home at 27. Um, I was a newlywed, um, a graduate student at the University of Maryland. Um, and so I was very traditional uh, in my in my first home. I think that as I, I reach, I won't say how old I am, but as I age, <laughs> I think my decision making is less traditional than it's ever been. Um, and so I'm excited about that. I think homes are not just a financial asset. It's a it's a lifestyle choice. When you buy a home, you're basically choosing a lifestyle.
0: Yeah, and I so, really agree with that, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I, I hope to choose a exciting lifestyle in the future.
0: Once again, thank you so much for joining us on How Do We Fix It?
2: Oh, Thanks so much. Take Gr- care, guys.
0: Great to have you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Wow, she's great. great. Hey, Jim, so before we
2: wrap
1: up and have our conversation I just want to thank everybody for listening to us and ask for even more which is if you can rate and review us on iTunes or SoundCloud makes a big difference Uh,
0: assuming you like the show of course
1: yeah yeah no if you don't like the show don't don't respond and also uh, sign up for our um, newsletter The Fixer all you have to do is go to howdowefixit.me.me and uh, and sign up for it. It's free. We're not going to do anything with it. We're not going to market your email address. But I think that uh, there's some good stuff in there about how we put our show together and also some links, some fix-it links on what you can do with uh, some of the stuff that we suggest during and, our shows.
0: And, of course, we want How Do We Fix It to be a real community. So we want to hear from you. What shows do you want to hear about? What problems do you want to get fixed? What solutions do you see out there.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Jim, I think there's some really good things that came out of this conversation with Neela Richardson, and one of them is that sometimes we need to give ourselves, in in the famous phrase of our producer Miranda Schaefer, a kick in the keister, a phrase I haven't heard for a while, but still. Uh, and that is She's the, a to, Reagan to, baby. To, to, to just change our mind about what's important to us. I mean, I moved from the suburbs seven, eight years ago and now live in a far smaller place in the city, and I'm really glad I did that and that we got rid of a lot of stuff. But when that process began, I was the squeaky wheel in the family, went, oh, gosh, you know, I want to hold on to all the stuff that I had, but but sometimes you, you you do need to change your perspective.
0: You know, and one part of the conversation that I thought was really interesting is mobility. You know, everybody emphasizes home ownership, but when your life, when you want mobility, and that could be true when you're in your 20s, it could also be true when you're in your 50s or 60s or older. i see seen so many old people kind of stuck in their big suburban house and the life changes and they, they're lonely and isolated. I see. You know, she talks about younger people who buy a house too soon, when it may not really fit their needs. And and I think that you know the market needs to allow for a whole bunch of different approaches. And yeah. there's not one cookie cutter. Not everybody needs to move to that you know, 4,000-square-foot house in the suburbs, that that's not right for everybody.
1: Yeah, one of the most creative ideas, I think, that came out of this was the need for banks and, and perhaps also for the government to recognize the sharing economy is here to stay. And part of that sharing could be uh, different families living together or individuals living together rather than just the classic single-family household.
0: Right. I mean, this has been called co-housing in some circles. And, and I think it's a really interesting idea It's been promoted on the kind of sort of hippie end of the spectrum, almost like a modern commune. But you also see it with uh, with older people. And then you see, um, um, my parents lived for many years in what's called an independent living facility. It's not an assisted living facility where you have nursing care and stuff, but there's a lot of old people living in an apartment building and eating dinners together. To me, that sounds like a really nice way to live when you're older.
1: It does, but I think that it's going to need more creative thinking on the part of of real estate brokers and banks especially on who they're going to lend money to, especially when it comes to millennials where perhaps several friends may want to buy a place together.
0: Right, and that income may not be pay stub. It might be a collection of gig economy jobs. And banks are going to have to figure out a way to actually recognize those people because their income may be fine, but it's not a single W-2.
1: Right, and and that W two is something that's always required. It's much more difficult to borrow money from banks if you're not if you don't have a full time job and it's been the same job for the last two years. You they think, want
0: constancy, and our economy is changing so rapidly that may not be possible. And you can't blame them for being conservative given the risks. But we need some innovation in the financial sector. I loved hearing Neela talk about
1: that. And one of the takeaways also from this is for people to get gather as much information as they can. The growth of online has really helped people get more access to information about housing markets, about um, how to build your credit score, how to improve your prospects for for home ownership. Well, you
0: know, it's really interesting. We started off talking about all the problems in China, and she's saying how they really lack transparency there. You know, you have this kind of crony capitalism, people connected to the government. You don't really have good information about the states of uh, the state of the economy or the states of businesses. And now, you know, as their economy goes through a, some real shocks, you're seeing the downside. And she said she's in favor of transparency and information. That's not just something for the individual consumer, but you need the society to have the institutions that encourage that kind of transparency.
1: Before we go, though, I want to circle back to the beginning and and leave people with the sense of, that it's important to stay calm and not to panic when we do have one of these uh, Wall Street crises. I, I remember back in March of 2009, when the stock market hit a multi-year low, I think it was its lowest point for at least 12, if not 15 years. A lot of people I know went, I'm getting my money out of here. I'm, I'm not going to have any money in the stock market anymore. It's just too risky. People who made that decision at that time have missed out on a six-year bull market and that may not matter in terms of oh okay i'm not an investor but most people have savings now and your 401k funds go up and down with the stock market and if you just keep some of your money in the market for the long term makes a lot more sense than panicking
0: at moments like this one okay well no panicking here (laughs) (laughs) let's stay calm thanks jim all right great show richard this is How Do We Fix It. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And our audio engineer, Denise Barberita. At Mono Lisa Studios here in beautiful uptown Manhattan.
1: How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits.